All right, thanks uh, all for coming to this session. Um, uh, I closed the door, but if you, like halfway through you're like, ah, this is not what I signed up for, and you want to get up and leave, you could do it. I just made it a little bit more awkward for you to leave uh, during the session. I teach, uh, my name is Zach Lubin. Uh, I've been um, with the university in some form or fashion for about 20 years. I was a student here, I was a grad student here. Um, I've been an adjunct professor in a religion division which means that I've gotten really good at talking to people who aren't paying any attention to me and still walking away feeling very good about myself. And um, I uh, am actually in transition for the past two years. I've worked for the Hub for Spiritual Life, uh, ministering to graduate students at our four graduate schools. Um, but uh, Monday morning, I'll wake up, I'll come to campus, and I'll have the title of Director of Student Convocation, which is our chapel program here at the university. So I'll be running that um, starting on Monday. So this week has been fun, seeing a lot of people uh, grew up in the Churches of Christ in the Bay Area and um, love our tradition. So it's been uh, a little bit of a reunion for me, um, but I've also been like lugging like all of my books from like one office to another. They're like, what's happening to me? <laughs> I'm moving. And you're like, why did you choose Harvard to move? And I was like, I didn't. It was just the way that things broke out. So um, the title for this class is A Poetic Take. Um, and I will be honest, I'm not a poet, uh, um, and so, uh, but I think what poets do, or the, my experience of poetry, um, has given me insight into what I think uh, the role of church, the role of Christians, the role of ministers and pastors um, can be about. And so, I'm going to really look at um, some work from three major thinkers, Charles Taylor, who is a Canadian philosopher, who wrote a really big book. Um, called The Secular Age back in 2007. And then James K.A. Smith wrote a much smaller book and translated what that 800-page book said so people could understand it. Um, and then we're going to look at a, a thinker uh, from Germany, Hartmut Rosa, um, and some thoughts from a, a, a professor here in the U.S., Andrew Rude. And I want to kind of talk about those because I think the way that I understand like the, a poet um, and what, what poetry does um, makes, helps us make sense of sort of the, the cultural realities in which we find that I don't actually think many of our churches are paying much attention to. I think um, we think we're living in a particular time. I think culture wars kind of um, lead me to believe this. Uh, but Taylor makes uh, an argument that we're actually in this other stage. And I think if we can wrap our minds around this other stage, uh, we'll, we'll have a better opportunity of serving our communities. Um, so the way I think about the poetry and the way that I use poetry is the way that um, I uh, think about the way that I used music in high school. I'm not musical, I can't sing, I have no like rhythm or anything like that, but I was really good at building and making mixtapes or mix CDs and so using other people's uh, music to kind of convey an idea or a thought. And so. That's kind of what I'm doing. We'll look at some poetry, but to start, I want to um, have you listen to a song. Uh, and I think this song really captures something uh, really unique about our cultural um, reality. And I, I'd love for you to pay attention to the lyrics, to, the, to how you're, uh, you feel about the song and, and the message, and everything about that. The song is called The Gospel of Hope. Um, it's by a band called St. Lennox, um, which is really just uh, one guy who does indie pop music. Uh, but the song is called The Gospel of Hope. So I want, I want us to listen to this and 
as a, a jumping off point for our conversation today. I'm not a religious man, but I can understand religion. See, my dad was a kid in a war-torn country, enemy forces closing in. Then the Carter strike them down, send them back to the north, you see. There on the cusp of Jeju Island, I can see my dad as a young man. before. The only reason why I stumbled across them is uh, part of my story is I'm a Korean-American adoptee um, and uh, I was interested in learning more about Korea and so one of the ways that I did that was I did a Google search for Korean-American artists and he popped up. Uh, he's actually really interesting. He's like Juilliard trained vocalist. He's a lawyer and he does this as like a, a side uh, project which is kind of annoying to me because um, <laughs> he's one of those people. Um, so real quick, maybe with someone you know or don't know, if you would just uh, real quickly have a quick conversation with some of these prompts. What did you like about the song? If you liked it, maybe you didn't like it. Uh, what, so what did you not like about the song? 
what do you think the overall message of the song would be? Was there a particular line in the song that stood out to you? Do you find the song to be hopeful? The title of the song is A Gospel of Hope, and so I'm interested in, in, in hearing a little bit about that. But just like a brief two or three conversation, minute conversation about that, and then uh, I'll kind of uh, explain why I like that as an intro to our time together. So. All right, if I could gather your attention uh, back together. Um, I am interested in how the conversations went. What did, what did you all think about the song aesthetically, the message, anything was fair game? Uh, what did you all think? It's a good song. Yeah. Yeah. Got a good you could dance to it. You could dance to it, yeah. yeah. I see you didn't get up and dance to it, so I'm a little bit disappointed. We need a second Yeah, second time through. Maybe we'll end our class as more with a, a dance party. Yeah. Well, I struggled with, I mean, Lynn listening to the lyrics and just the way he performed it, to me it sounded like a parody. Uh-huh. Um, but then you look at the subtitle and it's 10 worships. Yeah. So I'm like, well, wait a second. I, I wasn't buying into what he was saying from a... Christian person. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I think aesthetically he's really like, uh, he gets, he's interesting. He's never going to be popular, right? Like his, his vocal style, his sort of uh, singing, and he's talked a lot about um, he's kind of an elitist. He, he, he's okay with not people not really liking it popularly. Um, every time I put this record on in the house, my wife is like, what are you listening to? Like, you, you, you need to listen to this with headphones kind of deal, um, which is fine. Um, but yeah, aesthetically different. And so um, the sense of parody, I think, is, is really insightful. Other, other thoughts on the song? Well, Brian kind of made the point in, um, what's your name? Joseph. Joseph. Like, the sort of, like, interesting sort of juxtaposition between the verses and then the chorus, the mm -hmm. hallelujah, like it's, it's almost like he, yeah, there's just an interesting contrast between the tone of the verses and the chorus. Yeah, you know. yeah. I liked that you asked about whether it was hopeful or not, yeah. because in, in thinking about it while listening to the song, I might have expected you to ask, like, did you take it seriously or did you uh -huh. believe it? But because you asked if he was hopeful, um, it made me think about the trajectory in the song mm -hmm. that while he keeps rejecting that term religious and saying other people are singing hallelujah he finds a place to actually find God and yeah. sing his own hallelujah so yeah. there's some disconnect between that terminology for him that makes me want to like take him out for coffee and yeah. find out what's up here's a quote that he had in um, uh, the magazine American Songwriter about his album 10 Songs of Worship and Praise for our tumultuous times, his, his every one of his albums is like ten songs of da, 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 very long. He writes, "I understand why people have moved away from the church, but at the same time, I understand why people are religious. I want the music to help people remember the hopeful feeling that I remembered when I was growing up in the church. If that's the starting point, then maybe people can see themselves as being religious again. Maybe I can see myself being religious again." And so you're right; he's not. He's not writing from a distinctly Christian perspective. He's writing as someone who has grown up in the church as a second-generation Korean immigrant. Um, his parents are very faithful Christians, and that has shaped his experience along with uh, other parts of his narrative. 
And this song is, this, the entire album is really interesting because he's dealing with themes of death, he's dealing with themes of hope, and it's not purely from a Christian standpoint. But I think what uh, St. Lennox or Andrew Choi does is that he really kind of gives us an insight into uh, the, the religious or the spiritual nature of our culture. So Charles Taylor, who is a philosopher from Canada, like I mentioned, um, in his book, A Secular Age, says that there's these three ages of secularity. And he says, you know, there's zero secular, there's secular one, secular two, and secular three. And this is uh, James K.F. Smith. If you're at all interested in Taylor, I just really recommend that you get the 120-page book by Smith. Um, he writes, uh, secular three is Taylor's notion of the secular as an age of contested belief where religious belief is no longer axiomatic. It's possible to, now my slide got cut. It's possible to imagine oh, the world without God, basically. And so Taylor's project is, he says, 500 years ago, everyone believed in God. Being, not believing in God wasn't really an option. So what's happened in the 500 years from now until 2023, where belief in God is contested? And what he tells in, this, in his book is it's not a story of subtraction. It's not a story of loss of sacred. It's actually a story of addition. That as more and more technology, more and more science kind of close the gap of knowledge, God became more and more optional. And his argument is that we're really in a secular three stage. And I, I like one of the lines. I don't know if, it, if, he, if this is a, an exact quote from Taylor, but he says... Basically what this means is that um, believers are going to be haunted by doubt in a modern world, right? So you can have an experience and be like, oh, that's God. But then someone will be like, well, it could also be like, like uh, there's a scientific explanation of what you experienced in this moment. And then you have to be like, okay, well, how do I understand it's God or, or not? So that's sort of like, oh, okay, not great. The other side of that is, uh, Taylor argues, is that Doubters are haunted by belief. Because there's these moments that we run up into where like the material world cannot explain all that is going on. Right? The cliche is like the first time you hold your child, right? There's this moment that you're like the, the universe, the world, the cosmos is bigger than the material. There's more good than going on in this moment here. So he calls this like this haunted by um Haunted by belief. Um, some other terms that I think are helpful with Taylor to think about is he makes this argument that we live in the age of authenticity. It's a post-60s age in which spirituality is de-institutionalized and it is understood primarily as an expression of what speaks to me. Right? And the previous age, uh, pre-60s, he, he calls it the age of duty and this idea that you had a duty to the larger sort of community and things like that. Um, I think that's helpful just understanding even when we talk about intergenerational conversations that there's a, just a difference in like what we care about, right? So post 60s, we really are internalizing this authenticity, right? And when you talk about spiritual formation and discipleship, which we love to do in our churches, one of the things that we have to run up against, or one of the things that I think we run up against is that people are really just resistant of someone telling you, telling me what to do because I want to be authentic. Like, I'm not, going to do, I'm not going to church today, I don't feel like it, right? And you go, well, you don't feel like it. This is what we do, right? That's my parents, this is what we do, we go to church. And I don't feel like it. 
right? What you have there is the age of duty. It's a duty to go to church, to be committed to a larger community versus age of authenticity, which is like, I don't, like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right to me. When you talk about spiritual formation, I think there are a lot of, like, issues there because what you're, and even when you think about church shopping, right? Like, I would go to that church, cool. Um, oh, the pastor, the preacher is, like, telling me something I don't want to hear. I'm going to go to this other church, right? Because we, it doesn't fit right. Like, I'm not, it's, it's about me and, and what's authentic to me. Uh, the buffered self um, in the modern social imaginary, the how we conceive the world, the self is sort of insulated uh, in an interior mind, no longer vulnerable to the transcendent or the demonic, right? And so that is the idea that, like, in a, in a scientific world, when things happen, like, we're not, we're not worried about, like, demon possession the way that they were, like, 500 years ago. Or we, we have science to kind of explain a, a certain number of things, right? So, like, when, uh, you know, here in L.A., when we had, like, seven days of straight rain, right? And we have the atmospheric river sitting over us and my house that I just spent way too much money on is leaking, you know? And I'm like, ah, oh, geez, what did I, what do we do here? Uh, I don't think, well... You know, I guess it's the end times, right? Like, like God's punishing me, or God's punishing LA, or you know, all those things, because I have science to tell me. Well, no, actually, what's happening is that you know this you know storm over here built up steam and came over, and then and we explain it all away. I'm not worried when there's a full moon that like there's going to be transformations of people or like things like that, which you know hundreds of years ago we did because we didn't have sort of the scientific mindset of. Uh, the imminent frame, a control of social space that frames our lives entirely within the natural, other rather than the supernatural order. It is the circumcised space of the modern social imaginary that precludes transcendence. And so Taylor argues that what we live in now is the imminent frame, which is basically uh, God is optional in the sense that we don't need God to find meaning and purpose. The material provides that for us to a point like we know it ultimately doesn't right uh like i growing up parents you know my parents were all like money doesn't buy happiness right but then like we they're like but well, you need to go to school and you need to make money well why well it doesn't buy happiness but it does do all of these other things i don't think we're telling people anymore that money doesn't buy happiness i think we actually are living in a world where we think in the imminent frame that we can find purpose and meaning in the material until we can't um, I don't have this up here, but what Taylor says is that because the imminent frame can't explain everything, even though we pretend that it can, he calls this like a spiritual supernova. And so what you have is a few people who've lived in the imminent frame who recognize uh, it can't answer all of the questions that we have as humans. And so uh, you have this explosion of spirituality, right? And you're seeing that, right? We're seeing that with new religions or different religions or sort of even the potlucking of, of religious faiths that younger people are doing because they they know that they want something more than the imminent frame uh, any questions about that i'm just i'm not a tailor expert there are smarter people out there than me but these are things are helpful to kind of get a sense of of where we are um, in terms of uh, what I think it is. Uh, my, my, my argument is that most of our churches think we're in a secular two world, which is that there's a battle between the sacred and the secular. And so we're trying to win sacred spaces over from the secular space. Taylor says secular three is that we're all, we all live in a secular world. 
even me as a pastor or a minister, like I, I have a contested belief. Like, you know, I there's science, right? I live in a world where consumption, like I like to consume things, right? I my Amazon Prime account is awesome. In two days, I can get whatever I want, right? So he, Taylor's argument is that we're in a secular three, meaning that we're all haunted by belief and doubt uh, in some ways. Uh, two other things that are important for uh, uh, for Taylor to understand as, as we think about this imminent frame is that within the imminent frame, he says, the best thing you can do is these, these things called takes. So the take is this idea of... Uh, it's open to the viability of other takes, right? So to be a Christian and take an open take is to say, like, yeah, God still acts in history, right? Can I prove that scientifically? No, not necessarily, but I believe that. So I'm going to be open to the transcendent. I'm going to be open to God. Um, a take can become a spin, which is basically becoming, like, dogmatic to the point of not being open to the plausibility of the alternative. Now, he really says that most of us live with takes, right? You can have religious closed spins, right? Which is just sort of like, uh, you know, you're ultra dogmatic, like, you know, kind of, kind of idea. Or you can have sort of a closed, like closed off to the transcendent, which would be sort of your angry atheist, right? So the Richard Dawkins of the world who like are just so sort of dogmatic on the other side. But he argues that we're kind of in, these, in this idea of a take, right? And I think this is helpful when we talk about doing ministry to anyone in a secular three age, uh, is that the approach isn't that I'm going to prove something to you, because that, proving something to them in an intimate frame really doesn't sort of work uh, because of all the additional things of technology and so on and so forth. Uh, so some thoughts based upon what Taylor uh, most of us live with takes, and therefore we are either haunted by doubt or haunted by belief. Uh, some of us may live with spins, right? I, uh, I've been uh, a minister, I've been in the Church of Christ my entire life. I think some of us t live with spins, like we're so closed off, and I think that's problematic. I don't think it's important to understand ministers and pastors also live in the imminent frame and therefore must contend with their own haunting and doubt, which can lead to a malaise. I'm defining malaise as a general feeling of uncertainty about the role in a world where God is no longer necessary. Andrew Root uh, teaches at Lutheran Seminary, and he's in a whole series of books uh, that I think are really, really genius, um, talking about secular age and a couple other things. And a lot of what I'm doing here is based upon my interaction with his material. Uh, but he kind of talks about this malaise that ministers feel where they're not really sure what they're doing day to day. And the argument is, is that in a secular three world where God is optional, right, where everything's material, like how do you talk about the transcendent? How do you talk about God with, with people? And so he talks about how, um, um, and I think this is true, I think this malaise leads ministers to, to, to lean more into the imminent frame. Right? I think there's a reason why ministers are becoming therapists, which is a move to the inner mind and the internal workings, right? Because even ministers are sort of like, to do work in this world, like, you know, I could, like, no one's calling me to, for an exorcism, right? No one's calling me to administer these sacred rites or do these sort of things, 
uh, because we live in this imminent frame where those are sort of optional. And so it's this feeling of like, what are we doing? What are we trying to, well, uh, in this area? Um, no one escapes the imminent frame or secularity three and this needs to inform our understanding of the role of the minister. Uh, you know, a lot of the imminent frame, I think, is teaching us to think of our churches and our ministries in terms of resources and innovation, right? And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to resource, we're trying to build things up, we're trying to get people here, we're trying to do all these things. Again, because we're, I think we're functioning with this idea that uh, we're really uh, fighting a secular two world when we're really in secular three. Um, I think in an intimate frame of spins and takes the role of the minister or pastor is to help people remain open to God. Um, and I think that is helpful. Uh, it was helpful to me. Like, I tell a story, like, I was in youth ministry for 15 years. Well, no, 14 years. And uh, I would go into work on Tuesday, and I would do all my stuff, and I'd leave thinking, man, I'm doing so good. This was such a great day. I feel so fulfilled. I'd go on a Wednesday. I'd do the exact same thing. I'd leave Wednesday. I was like, what am I doing here? Like, what, like, what is the point of all this? Like, I feel, and nothing changed between those two days. But I was feeling this malaise, where I was feeling this, this contest, right? And so, really, this is helpful, has been helpful to me that my role is not necessarily to resource, build the biggest program, but I am really called to help people remain open to the idea that God still acts in this world, right? And that looks very different than a lot of the programs that we launch in churches. Um, another thing that I want to introduce, and are already running out of time, uh, Hartmut Rosa, um, and he uh, is really interesting. He's a German sociologist. Um, he decided, he argues that we can define modernity by this term social acceleration. Uh, and this is the most depressing uh, line that I think I read when I encountered his work, is this idea that we must work harder and faster every year to remain exactly where we are. Right? And I think we feel that. Right? Because the world's speeding up and going faster and faster and faster and faster. And technical acceleration, social change, like you know, we know that, right? It, you know, conversations around gender. It's like, oh, you know, I just figured out this, and like we're already doing other things. It's this moving so much faster, and then our pace of life, right? We're moving faster and faster and faster. What this does for our churches is that, without paying attention to this, what we do is so, like, well, we're going to launch this new program without paying attention that no one has the time for. No one has the energy for it. And well, what's wrong? This is such a great idea. And pastors burn themselves out. But we're not paying attention to the fact that we're just moving faster and faster and faster. Right? I have to work harder next year to stay exactly where I am socially. And he says that this ultimately is untenable. Because there's things in the world that don't, can't accelerate. Right? One of the ways that uh, I find this really interesting is he talks about email. And the way email was supposed to make our lives so much easier because it's like, you know, Instead of writing, spending 20 minutes writing a letter, I just quick email and send it off. But if that's not true, like, we're busier, right? We're busier. This technology is actually helping us slow things down. He says, um, social acceleration leads to alienation. Encountering the world is either indifferent or even repulsive, right? This idea that we're out of sync in our relationships with people and with the world. Um, and then his answer is not to slow things down, because he says, like, we basically can't, right? Like, slowing things down don't actually um, help us. Um, he argues for this idea of resonance, a kind of relationship to the world formed through effect, emotion, and transformation. Um, subject and world are mutually affected. 
and a resonant relationship. So some ideas of uh, resonance, being affected, right? You're being affected by the world. Something is affecting you. Um, Self-efficacy, reacting to the impulse that calls us to reach out toward that which moves us. And then adaptive transformation, experiencing resonance transforms us and it is precisely this transformation that makes us feel alive. Right? I think this is really key. Like when I think about worship, when I think about uh, the things that I've done in youth ministry, I think sometimes the affected and the efficacy or the emotional side of resonance takes place. Right? But what I'm, I'm always interested in is this idea of transformation. Right? So for me, the idea is if, if I'm leading something and a person has an experience of God, they're going to be affected. There's going to be an emotional response, but it's also going to lead to transformation. If I don't get transformation, then I'm not sh I'm, like I have questions about like what took place there, right? Not to deny that God isn't doing something, right? But this idea of resonance, like there's a transformation. The world you are made different through this. Um, Rosa's, Rosa wrote really two long books, and then a third book called um, "The Uncontrollability of the World," which is. I think a really good primer for his thought. But he uh, says resonance is uncontrollable. Right? You don't get to control when and people resonate with something. Um, and that's been helpful to me, again, as a minister, because sometimes what we do, or what I've done, is we've promised an encounter with God. Well, God is uncontrollable. Well, that's like a pretty foundational moment, like statement of our faith, right? I am what I am, I am who I will be, I will be who I will be. God acts in freedom, right? And so sometimes we promise resonance with God in our worship services, and we can't actually promise that. We can, we can probably promise emotion. Like, I know enough worship ministers who can say, like, look, we know human psychology well enough that if I play these three or four chords long enough, I'm going to get an emotive response from kids, right? But is that a resonant moment with God? Not necessarily. I mean, honestly, that's manipulation from from the ministers and pastors, like that's what's there. So this idea of uncontrollability is important to understand resonance as this idea of uh, of things. Uh, Rosa talks about a vertical and horizontal axis, right? So uh, for him, he's not writing from a particularly Christian perspective, but he does talk about God as this vertical axis of resonance of of experiencing God in a way. What I like about his thought is the idea of transformation, which I think is significant to think about. Um, let's see if this will work. Um, well, I'm going to skip that. Um, there's this movie, Brad Status. It's a, a really awkward Ben Stiller movie. It's cringy, like most of how I experience Ben Stiller movies. But there's this great scene um, at the end of it. Brad's, Brad is this guy who has hit like a midlife crisis. He's taking his son on uh, college tours and he's a musician um, and he's kind of replaying his life and he has three friends who are seemingly more successful than he is and he kind of goes through this crisis where he's like wondering about his purpose and he does some like really awkward cringy stuff with some college uh, young women that you're kind of like, oh, that's creepy kind of deal uh, but at, towards the end of the movie and this is a spoiler alert uh, he has this moment where he's listening to uh, this orchestra play with his son um, and there's this voiceover, it's Ben Stiller, and he goes, uh, uh, I can love them without possessing them. 
right? I can experience, and he has this moment, this resonant moment here, and he starts crying, and his kid thinks he's having like a like a mental breakdown, and kind of deal. But I do think there's this idea that uh, so much of what we do is we try to control and own and like and, and make things. Um, and resonance is this idea that like uh, to be affected by something does not mean that we possess it, right? That we don't master God, we don't own God, formulize God in a way that says, here's God, and then we uh, have done our job. But uh, this idea of being open to God is, uh, is a way of, of thinking of that. Um, so uncontrollability, four thesis. Uh, uncontrollability, uh, work and then contingency. Residence requires a world that can be reached, not one that can be limitlessly controlled. The confusion between reachability and controllability lies at the root of the muting of the world in modernity. So we're trying, I think one of the things is that we're trying to control. We're trying to overpromise. We're trying to do these things. And the idea of uncontrollability and resonance is helpful. Uh, so let me tell you how I think of poetry <laughs> based upon some of this stuff. That might be that might be helpful. Uh, so some other thoughts: uh, we can create opportunities for resonance. We cannot control the experience of God. Resonance with God in an intimate frame is contested. The role of the minister pastor is to continually invite people to take an open take, or what I would say is like a poetic take. Uh, uncontrolled means we do not master the relationship with God. And then this question of do we overpromise in some of the programs that we're doing? We promise that they're going to meet God, and then they show up and they go in. You know. I felt manipulated, I got emotional, but I didn't really meet God. I didn't have a resonant relationship, a moment with God. I think it's something we need to be, we may pay attention to. Um, Regina uh, Mara Schwartz uh, wrote about sacramental poetry. She says, sacramental poetry points to a meaning greater than and beyond itself. Sacramental poetry is language that does not contain what it expresses, rather it expresses far more than it contains. And so I think poets help us see beyond the imminent frame. I think poets uh, complicate English language, the mastery of the English language, and they move things around and they challenge us to see more than just the material world. I think poets also provide us opportunities for resonance um, in their reflections. Um, and one of the reasons why I think it does that, I think poetry, ultimately good poetry, which I, I'm no expert on it, but it resists simplistic formulas and answers, right? To experience poetry is to have your life complicated a little bit, right? You don't simply just read a poem and go, oh, I don't know exactly. It can hit you differently at different times. Uh, so uh, my contention is that this poetic take for a pastor is that we let go of mastery. We lean into sort of the idea that poetry uh, complicates, invites resonance in a way that helps us help people remain open uh, to the transcendent God. Uh, one of the ways that I have done, I've tried to practice this in my own life, is by reading more poetry, uh, by um, thinking about the way that poets use language um, to talk about you know, God, to use uh, a poetic license to uh, expand meanings, to do any number of things. And one of the ways that I've done this is that there is a, a pastor in New York uh, named Drew Jackson who wrote uh, two books of poetry. Um, and what he did is he wrote, uh, he read uh, each uh, chapter in his 
books of poetry uh, relates to a chapter in the Gospel of Luke. And so he writes five or six poems inspired by the Gospel of Luke, and it's been this really fascinating uh, discipline for me. I read a chapter in Luke, and then I read this poetry, um, and it's opened me up to understanding Scripture and experience of God uh, in, a, in a couple of unique ways. This is his last poem in his second book. And this is what poetry does. It carries us. It invites us into a story unfinished, saying, write the next stanza. It gives us no plan, no blueprint for the future, but simply asks us to witness, take it in, and declare what we have seen. It leaves us with questions, gazing toward heaven for answers, but no answer descends. It's intent to get us to sit with the questions again. Um, and it's titled Ascension, and this is the last chapter in, in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus ascends, and so this is his poem. Um, just some, uh, oh, that's not what I want. Just some other thoughts. Uh, a poetic take then is, a, is about trust and not certainty, right? Uh, a poetic take is about waiting for God to once again act in history and help people recognize it. Uh, I think the idea that I've uh, found helpful is, again, like I understand the move to thinking more of like becoming therapists or going the inward side. But like the Christian faith says that salvation doesn't come from within. Salvation comes from God, from without. And so we have to resist the, this, this move inward. Um, I think a poet take leans into the foolishness of the cross and that life is found in death. Um, and, and in that, I think um, a poetic take helps us understand, because good poetry isn't limited to the good things in the world. Um, a, a poetic take uh, would help ministers and pastors narrate stories of death and stories of doubt. Because um, to present faith as being something without doubt in a secular free world, if you buy what, what Charles Taylor is saying, I think misses the opportunity to resonate with um, with people because it's just not the way they're seeing they're seeing the world. Um, there's a lot. Um, I have some um, resources here. Uh, I'm happy to share those with you if you want to stick around. Uh, if you really want sort of a practical application to church and things, Andrew Root is the person I would uh, point you to. He wrote uh, Congregation and Secular Aid, Churches in Crisis of Decline. The Church After Innovation just came out in 2022. He has a new book coming out in June called uh, when, uh, when Church Stops Working. Um, and he's really, he, he's a good storyteller. He, he, he's worthy of, of looking at. If you want to read some of Rosa's stuff, he's over there. Um, and then uh, James K. Smith for Thoughts of Charles Taylor. Uh, Schwartz, which I quoted her, Sacramento Poetics at the Dawn of Secularism. When God Left the World, Taylor's Secular Age. Uh, William James Jennings, his book, After Rightness, he talks about this idea of fragments and like teaching and preaching is about this bringing together of fragments and resisting mastery, and I think um, that's really helpful. And then if you want, if you're like, that didn't make any sense, that didn't make any sense today. Uh, I did write a paper that was published by the Discernment Journal over at ACU based upon this material that is probably more coherent than what I just presented to you all uh, this morning, but it's um, uh, there as well. And I take Taylor, Rosa, and Root and kind of bring them together uh, with some other some other thinkers. So 
Uh, we have just maybe a minute or two for questions. If there's anything that you'd like to ask, or you know, just be like, what did you do for the 45 minutes? I can't pay you for your time because I don't have that money, but I could, you know, see that. Any questions or anything that from from you? Do you see a correlation between the rise in a desire for spiritual direction and engaging God this way instead of through programmatic ministry? Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I think again, like authenticity, like one of the things about spiritual direction is really kind of individual, and it's like your spiritual director helps you kind of right. like um, you know Parker Palmer really popularized this with the yeah. like the inner self and the false self, and so that's the that's the world we live in. Um, I don't think it's wrong. Like I, what yeah. what I'm not saying is we need to move back towards right a different age. Right? We're and not we're not we're not moving backwards. So. I'm not, I'm not saying that okay, that's what you're yeah. saying, but I do think that's one of the reasons why spiritual direction is also one of the reasons why, like, I think discipleship programs aren't going to work for the church. Like, I think if, if discipleship programs were going to work and save our churches, we would be there already. Because I don't know a church that's not running some sort of a discipleship program as we kind of generally conceive of them. I think uh, uh, the discipleship programs as they are, they, I think they overpromise. I think they're consumptive because they're 12 weeks and then you're done, right? And so I think it leans into this imminent frame, this authenticity, this sort of consumer mentality, uh, and it doesn't actually provide resonance um, as I see them, as I see them often practice. And, I, and there's probably a really good. Your church might have a great discipleship program that I just haven't experienced. But my overall sense is that discipleship programs, while there's merit to them in some way. It, it, it's not paying attention to the authenticity because discipleship programs really kind of say like, oh no, you like you have to do something that you doesn't feel true to yourself, right? And that's just going to be resisted by this generation in a lot of ways. So, other thoughts, questions? Yep. Can you think of uh, things like poetry but are not poetry that can lead people to that sort of resonance space? Yeah, I think music, right? Which you know, depending on how you understand music, I think musically that 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 exists um, relationally, right? Like you, like we all have probably we wouldn't use the word resonance to talk about like moments when you just have felt in this intimate relationship with someone and you felt like the world was alive, or the like the world slowed down and you're like, man. We just I want to stay here with this person in this moment, right? That's resonance. So relationally, it doesn't have to be uh, poetry uh, per se, uh, but uh, this idea of uh, of the relationship. I think music can get us there. I think comedy can get us there. I think you know all these sort of art forms can help us get to resonance. The the thing that I keep coming back to is. Uh, from a sort of a discernment, and I don't have a great sort of picture of what this looks like, I'm still thinking about it, but the transformative part, I think really matters. Because in my own experience in youth ministry, I had a lot of kids cry on Wednesday night of camps. Um, and that was, I think that was good for them. I think that was an emotional release. I think they needed that. But I'm not sure that led to the transformation of following Jesus the way that I would want it to. Right? And so I'm not anti-emotion, but I am questioning what we do 
when we just walk away and go, man, that was awesome. Like, did you see that 40 kids cried and they all got baptized? Well, cool. Five or six years from now, what are they doing? Right? I think that transformative nature is important. Yeah? I think that when you, when you let people open up and with poetry or with music or with art, they express themselves. Yeah. They're thinking. They're really thinking. They're not just feeling. Yeah. They feel, too. Yeah. They also think. And they remember that decades later. Yeah. I remember yeah. the class you did when you had me do this. Yeah. And you said, wow, oh, I don't remember. Yeah. But they said, that was powerful. And I think that is very transformative when you let people really yeah. express themselves. Yeah. They, yeah, one of the things that I think Rosa has thought has been helpful to me as I've thought about teaching and preaching is that they, uh, this idea that if you expect, right, you try for resonance, right, you can't control it, but you can kind of like just keep it in that mind is helpful in, in what you do. So, yeah. uh, it is 1049, so thank you all for your attention. I appreciate you coming to my class when you could have gone to see someone smarter and better than me, but I appreciate it all. If uh, you want to stick around and ask any questions or if you want any of the resources I provided up here, I'm happy to do that. But thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day.